We're delighted to have Anne Benton and Kathleen Nielsen with us today, and we'll be talking to Kathleen in the session after lunch. So we just want to ask Anne a few questions, just and get to know a wee bit more about her. So Anne, first of all, how far have you travelled today, and have you been in Ireland before? Well, I came over yesterday uh, from England, from Gatwick. I live in Surrey. And I, I stayed overnight in Bangor, which was very nice. And I have, I have actually, this is my third visit to the province this year, which has been nice. I'm getting to know it just a little bit. But before that, hardly ever. So this is good. And you've brought nice weather with you every time, so yep. you need to come more often. Absolutely every time. Now, this weekend, for example, in the southeast of England, it's raining. But here, no. Every time I come, gorgeous weather. There you are. It's not often this is the place to be, is it? <laughs> and you have four grown-up children. Any yes. grandchildren, and do they live nearby? I have, uh, I have five grandchildren, one grandson, four granddaughters. And no, sadly, none of them live nearby. Um, I've, got, I've got one lot in the west of England, one lot in the east of England, and one in the middle of England. So they, they didn't do anything convenient for us, but... <laughs> It could, it could be further away. It's okay. <laughs> They're still in the same country. They most are. of them. They are. <laughs> my, well, my youngest son, who's married but has no children, he lives in Japan at the moment. So he's a long way away. But. <laughs> Always a good excuse for a holiday. <laughs> and you're part of that minority group known as the minister's wife. How do you manage the balance between grandmother and minister's wife and conference speaker and all those things that you do? Uh, I don't know, really. <laughs> I wish I could give you an answer to that. I suppose I have some things in my life which must be done. I've got an elderly mother-in-law who is uh, quite labor-intensive, so I, that has to always to be, at the moment, is a big priority. I've got a husband. He needs looking after. He needs my attention and my support because he has a ministry. And then I find that as I, as I pray and plan things kind of slot. There are seasons for this and seasons for that. And sometimes, yeah, you have to be sacrificial. You can't always do what you'd like, but God gives you the privilege of ministry. You want to, you want to go and do it while you can. Well, we're um. really pleased you managed to <laughs> slot us in today. Um, and you edited a book actually called The Minister's Wife. And I love the fact that different minister's wives have contributed to that book. How did you decide who would write which topics, and how did you decide which topics you would write? Well, in a way, I didn't decide uh, that. That was a project by the FIEC in England, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, that is. And they, um, they asked me to write a chapter on responsibilities to our children. And uh, I did that and submitted it. And then, later on, they asked of me if I'd edit the whole book and add another chapter because they'd got all these different chapters and they were overlapping and repetitive and so I had the job then of editing other women's words and trying to preserve their unique voice while also sorting it out a bit so it made a coherent whole. That was quite a challenge. That was last year. <laughs> well you did a great job because their individual personalities really come across in the different chapters. Um, most of Anne's books are about different stages of life, and my own personal favourite is the book on teenagers. Um, she just her sense of humour comes across mm -hmm. in it, and it just makes it really accessible and very practical. 
My daughter-in-law has just bought Aren't They Lovely When They're Asleep? Isn't that a brilliant title? And, do you know, I can remember those times with my oldest son when he'd have been causing chaos during the day. And then I'd have gone into him at night, and there he was, lovely, sleeping. Yeah. And you would think, how can someone so small cause such devastation during the day? I just hope that Sarah realizes with that book, it's not to help her look after Andrew, it is to help her look after our granddaughter. <laughs> but Anne, do you find it easier to write from your own experiences? Uh, I never really set out to write. I suppose I was asked to speak on topics and then um, somebody said, the talks were getting longer and longer and people said, that's not a talk, that's a book. So <laughs> I wrote a book and uh, I love speaking on the Bible. It's my passion, really, to speak on the Bible, but I haven't had any formal training in it, so I suppose I'm more comfortable writing about um, things that I've experienced. In a way, my books sum up my life, really. Children, teenagers, elderly parents, minister's wife. That's about it. (laughs) Well, Alma, really pleased that you've come today, and we're just going to hand over to Susie for one more song, and then Anne's going to speak to us. Time to get your Bibles out. And we're in the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians, and chapter 1. And I'm going to read from verse 3 to verse 14. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you all over the world. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason... Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's just pray. Lord, the entrance of your words gives light. 
Enlighten our minds and hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The poet Robert Frost wrote a very famous poem, you probably know it, about two roads which diverged in a wood. And I, he says, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. The poem is really, I think, exploring regret, the road not taken, and pointing out that the choices we make put us on a road which leads to other roads, and you don't ever get back. What would your life be like if you were not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? What difference would it, make, would it have made if you had never heard the gospel? Or if you'd heard it and dismissed it? Do you ever, do you ever wonder about those things? Now, for some of you people here... I'm sure a Christian lifestyle is something you've known since your cradle. That's not true in my case. And it does sometimes occur to me on a Sunday morning, for example, when I I sit in church, that I might have been like the rest of Britain. I, I might have been like my parents and my siblings, spending the day reading the Sunday papers or gardening or going shopping. What would it be like if that was all there was? But when I was saved, it put me on a road. The Bible would call it a narrow road. And that has made all the difference. We'll never know what would have been. All I can say in my own case is that one day I did hear the gospel and it changed and shaped my life. And that's the same for every believer here. Even if the outward change was not startling, maybe it was gradual. But there will have been a change because that is what the gospel does. And I've only got one proposition for you this morning based on Colossians 1, 3 to 14. This is it. It's quite a long sentence, but I'm going to break it up. This is the sentence. The gospel changes lives and they go on being changed because something extraordinary has happened. The gospel changes lives and they go on being changed because something extraordinary has happened. Let's break that up. First point, the gospel changes lives. We find that in verses 3 to 8 of our chapter in Colossians. Paul is writing to people he has never met. He's heard a lot about them, though, and he's aware that their faith is being undermined by some people within the church who are suggesting that mystical experiences and a rigorous, highly regulated lifestyle are the requisite next step to a higher plane of spirituality and a deeper knowledge of God. That's what's going on in the church in Colossae. So he starts his letter by talking about how he has heard about changed lives. In case his readers are anxious, they might not actually have it. They might not be proper Christians. Paul is emphasizing the fact that they are. The evidence is there in the excellent trio, which Paul loves to speak about, of faith, hope, 
and love. You get that in verses 3 to 5, don't you? It says in verse 4, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Faith, love, hope. Now, this is a very shrewd opening on the, on the part of the apostle, thanking God for what he has heard about God's work in their lives. So in a few words, he glorifies God and he encourages his hearers. I used to be in, in another life, it seems. I was once a primary school teacher. And at the end of the day, I would go out, take my class out, talk to some parents. And if it was appropriate, I would make a point of telling a parent in the presence of the child about some excellent achievement of the day. Now, that reinforces good behavior because I've stated explicitly the things I like to see. But it's also being extremely warm and positive. It's a win-win. Everybody's happy. Everybody's encouraged. And, you know, as Christians, so often we're aware of what we're not. We are frequently, if you're like me, frequently disgusted at our failures and our lack of progress. And of course, we are not what we could or should be. But Paul's point about the Colossians is that they are not what they were. The gospel put them on a road, and that has made all the difference. Where would I be if I had not heard and believed the gospel? Well, I would have no faith in Jesus Christ. I would have no love for Christian people and no hope of heaven. Those are the lowest common denominators of the Christian life. The gospel changes lives in the direction of faith in Christ, love for others, and hope of heaven. Now today our theme is transforming truth. And here we have a little insight into how that works, how it has made that difference. And we're going to notice three things from these verses, just verses three to eight now. First of all, it works because it is true. Twice in this section, Paul refers to the gospel as being true. This is a really important thing to get hold of, ladies. You see in verse 5, it's talked about the word of truth. End of verse 6, understood God's grace in all its truth. The Bible knows of no such thing as private truth. You know the kind of stupid thing people say where they say, oh, that's true for you. That's rubbish. We haven't got time to go into it, but, you know, anyone who says there's no such thing as absolute truth is making a statement they believe is absolutely true and which they expect to be taken seriously. So it's rubbish. Paul is saying the gospel of, of grace is a word of truth. In other words, what do we mean by that? It corresponds to real events, whether visible or invisible. There's more about that later in the, in the letter. But the point I'm making is that the truth of the gospel is the secret of its power in the lives of these Colossians and in our lives too. It works because it's true. There was a day in my life when I heard the gospel 
and considered the point that if it was true, it would not go away just because I walked away from it. It would still be there. It would still be true with all the dreadful implications of that for someone who who walked away from it. But more than that in Paul's argument is that the true gospel, it doesn't work by a kind of placebo effect. You know the placebo thing? You know, you take a smartie, but if you believe it's a headache cure, your headache will go away, that kind of thing. And lots of unbelievers want to dismiss the gospel that way. They say, oh, if you believe that and it makes you feel better, well, that's fine. That's nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Absolutely nothing. The placebo effect is an observable effect in some ailments, but not ultimately in anything medically critically threatening. The fact that you believe in a treatment is not ultimately going going to cure a disease. It's the treatment that either works or doesn't. The gospel actually does work in changing lives because it's true. And the reason we can know it is the same way or one of the ways in which Paul knew it, and he says in verse 6, the fact that all over the world, wherever Paul went, he saw the gospel bearing fruit. That's what it says in verse 6. Bearing fruit and growing. It does that because it's true. Lives are changed. All kinds of different people. Idol worshippers, pagans, Jews, Greeks, slaves, masters. Didn't matter what they were before, when they trusted Christ, their lives changed to be characterized by faith, hope, and love. The treatment was effective in every case. And you may have had the experience, as I have had, of, of meeting believers from different parts of the world, different backgrounds and cultures, and you see the same things shining through. The gospel, wherever it grows, bears recognizable fruit. That is one evidence of its truth. Second insight into the way that this works is it works through hearing and understanding. Another simple but important point See, he talks about them having heard it, verse 6. You heard it and understood. Paul nowhere mentions weird events. There are no signs in heaven, mushy feelings, being zapped. It's not there. You won't find it in the Bible. Ears and brain are involved. Hearing and understanding. That's what put you on the road. That's how God works in a life. They heard the gospel and they said, I understand it. I believe it. They may do this over a period of time or they may do it all at once. They may do it with tears and trauma or with a quiet prayer from the heart. But it comes down to hearing and understanding. And verse 21, later on in the chapter, it reminds us that before you're a Christian... You were an enemy in your mind. And it is to the mind that the gospel is addressed to show the need, the fault, the moral failure, and to show the Savior and his work which meets that need and failure. So it works through hearing and understanding. And thirdly, it works through the ministry of faithful Christians. In the case of the Colossians, one particular faithful Christian. 
Most, mostly it works that way. Occasionally you hear of conversions of people who just pick up a Bible. A conversion untouched by human hand. Yeah, you hear of those. But usually a human being is involved. Now, Paul did not have to mention Epaphras, but he does in verse 7. He wants to kind of big Epaphras up here. And at the end of the letter, in chapter 4, he does it again and talks in chapter 4, verse 12, about Epaphras who's always wrestling in prayer for you. He's always working hard for you. It's very likely that the self-styled super-spiritual guys who are derisive of ordinary word ministry of this humble, faithful pastor. They were saying, oh yeah, that, that's just, you know, beginner stuff. You don't need to worry about that. But this is the person who told them about Jesus. And Paul is giving Epaphras a big thumbs up here. He's giving him the apostolic endorsement. Faithful Christian ministry is really important to us. Is there now or has there been an Epaphras in your life? Thank God for that person now. Might have been a member of your family or a Sunday school teacher or a pastor. God uses people who will talk about Christ, whether from a pulpit or across a table. This is his means of spreading his transforming truth, getting people on the road which will make all the difference. Okay, next part of the sentence. The gospel changes lives and they go on being changed. This is the point we can pick up from verses 9 to 12. Paul tells the Colossians in verse 9, and indeed in verse 3, that he prays for them. Why does he do that? Well, to encourage them that he thinks of them and cares for them, certainly. But he could just tell them, oh, I pray for you. Could have left it at that. He didn't have to be so specific. But actually in verse, verses 9 to 12, he's quite lengthy about what he prays for them. And again, he's demonstrating apostolic shrewdness. In telling them the content of his prayers, he's setting before them fitting ambitions for them. He is spelling out what progress in the Christian life will look like. Perhaps the false teachers are thinking that the Christian life is rather static and that's why they're introducing some new hoops to jump through. Paul, Paul's prayer here demonstrates, we'll, we'll look at it a bit in a bit more detail in a moment, but the overall point is the Christian life is far from static. It is a road, you're on a road. Growth and progress are an expectation. Now, most of us, not all women, I know, I mustn't generalize, but most of us think that newborn babies are really cute. I actually keep a picture of my latest granddaughter. I keep it as a bookmark because it's so cute. But, you know, if she still looked like that in a year's time, would that be cute? No. It would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? A tragedy. A baby who doesn't grow, it's an anomaly. It's not what you want to see. Growth and progress are an expectation for a baby, but also for a Christian. 
Now, it's natural for people to testify about their conversion because it represents the big change in their lives. But there's plenty going on after conversion, as we shall see. Now, let's unpick some of the elements that Paul's praying for. Now, the foundation is knowledge, verse 9. That's the first thing. You see, asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That might sound a bit, a little bit airy-fairy, maybe. Not a bit of it. Knowledge of his will. What does that mean? It's the best kind of knowledge, really. Because it's the knowledge which informs actually what we do when we get up in the morning. One of the great things about the Christian life is that it has a point to it. It has an overarching purpose. We want to do what God wants. Doesn't it make you feel sorry for the rest who don't know why they're alive? They don't know. Did a survey in the street. You know, what do you think the point of life is? People even coming to the end of their life, mm, don't know, really. Don't know. But this knowledge that we're praying for, knowledge of his will, is not worldly knowledge, but it's through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, the combination of those two words remind us of what David asked for his son, Solomon, when he was to become king. And indeed, that Solomon asked for himself. And they're behind Solomon's collection of Proverbs in the Bible, which were written, in part at least, to help help a, a young person navigate life in the fear of the Lord. And Paul is asking that the Colossians should be filled with the knowledge of God's will. In other words, they are to seek to know more and more of it, growing in it, as it says in verse 10, Growing in it, growing in the knowledge of God. How is that going to happen? Through some mystical experience? No, not at all. It's summed up, really, in chapter 2. Just flick across to chapter 2, verse 6. It says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Continue in the same way you began. In other words, in the same way you heard the gospel and believed it, you heard it through hearing and understanding God's truth, whether through faithful Bible ministry or maybe through reading and meditating on the Bible, and you go on like that. That's how you go on. There's no other way. It's the same. Same way. This is the key. God's word of truth, which initially brought you to saving faith, will shape your thinking to get God's perspective on things that will translate into everyday living in this messy, complicated world. And Paul prays this for the Colossians. It's a big prayer. I don't think we often pray it for each other. That we just know it more and more. Know God, know his will more and more. There is no substitute, ladies, for time spent with God's word in church, at home. Use opportunities, even little ones. I know all about busy lives. Use even little ones. It'll change you and go on changing. Next, Notice that the overall aim is to please God. We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. Living a life worthy of the Lord is to live a life which gives the world an adequate picture 
of Jesus? Do your friends have a better understanding of Christ and a good impression of him because they know you? If you were all they had to go on to know about the Lord Jesus Christ, what would they learn? If you've got a teenager at home, especially a teenage daughter maybe, I wonder if you've ever said this, are you going out dressed like that? It's not really a question, is it? It's a a comment. In chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul talks about clothes. And I sometimes think, well, I wonder whether God ever looks at me and says, are you going out dressed like that? Because I've got the wrong clothes on, ladies. Do you know what the wrong clothes are? They're in chapter 3. Here's a a sample in verse 8. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, and so on. They're the wrong clothes. Does God ever stand by and feel grieved and annoyed? Because we're wearing the clothes of our old selves. We don't need to wear those clothes. We keep going to our old bag of horrible clothes and putting them on. But now we've been raised with Christ. We've got a new wardrobe. Verse 12 of chapter 3. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. They're the clothes we should be reaching for. Those are the clothes of our true selves. And as we spend time with the Lord through his word, we will be renewed to more naturally reach for the wardrobe of heaven instead of that old rubbish bag of clothes. But here's the main point I want to make here, which I think is very encouraging. Paul is praying that the Colossians will please God in every way. And that means, ladies, that pleasing God is a real possibility for ordinary ordinary Christians like you and me. And sometimes we're so aware of our failures. You know, we describe ourselves as miserable sinners, saved by grace, unprofitable servants at best, and so forth. And of course, those things are not untrue and there's a place for them and and self-examination and loathing and true repentance of course are are daily part of our lives but not to the extent that we are such miserable sinners that we think we could never ever please God that's quite unbiblical to see God as some kind of strict headmaster my office 920 that kind of thing always ready to chastise and point out our failures and never wanting to give us any credit however hard we try. That's almost blasphemous, it's so wrong. Of course, the Lord can be grieved and disappointed, but he also smiles. And the whole point of the salvation plan was to bring us back into relationship with him. He's the eternal father. If he wanted to just tell us off, he could have sent us to hell right away. But God is pleased when his children act with kindness or patience or humility. It's not perfect, we all know that, but it's sincere. He's pleased, it is possible, to please him, to know his smile, be encouraged. And we don't have to wonder about what will please him. We can study his likes and dislikes every time we open the Bible. I must move on. There will be fruit. Verse 10. 
You see? Bearing fruit in every good work. The image of a living organism growing and fruit bearing. It's found all over the place in scripture. Jesus himself warned that false teaching would be known by its fruit. And equally the Christian life is evidenced in fruit. Fruit of the spirit. Fruit in bringing others to Christ. Fruit in that most attractive and winning goodness. Which you will recognize in other Christians. And we hope that they will recognize in you. But another point is in this prayer, there's so much in this prayer, is that there will be a need for strength. Apart from being filled, we need to be strengthened. That's the other passive verb in this section. Paul is well aware of the fact that we're weak. He often says it of himself. And if you feel frequently tired and always unequal to the task in front of you, well, welcome to Paul's world. That is the nature of living for Jesus. But the good news and the point is that there is a supply of strength for the weary. And are you drawing on that? How does that strength show? Well, Paul's example might surprise you. He says, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, what do you think might come next? So you can do miracles? So that you can stand up on a platform and be really impressive? No. Here's a real miracle, isn't it? So that you might have great endurance and patience. Isn't that what you need? Some of you young mums, some of you people who, like me, are caring for elderly parents. Some of you in your workplace, in your neighbourhood. Good old-fashioned fortitude, hanging in, keeping going, keeping your mouth shut. Such underestimated virtues. It'll make you a better Sunday school teacher, a better mother, a better wife better teacher, better tea maker, whatever. Now that's a miracle. And lastly in this section, just notice the reference to joy. Joy. And joyfully giving thanks to the Father, verse 12. Joyfully giving thanks. What have we done that we've made the Christian life look so negative to a watching world? The Christian who is growing and being strengthened and bearing fruit has every possible reason to be happy. And joy under pressure and through trial is one of the greatest evidences of God's work. The gospel changes lives and they go on being changed. That reference to joyful thanksgiving is the bridge to our last section this morning. The gospel changes lives. They go on being changed because something extraordinary has happened. And that's in verses 12 to 14. You may be wondering why I have not been more explicit about what the gospel is. That's because Paul doesn't, until this point, explain it. He has worked up to to a climax. And the first thing to observe is that Paul is talking in in these few verses from 12 to 14. He's talking about completed works of God past tense. He has qualified. He has rescued. He has brought you. Done deal. Your fruit bearing and knowledge won't work this for you. Oh no. You already have qualification. You already have been rescued. And now we see that what put us on the road was a rescue mission. Let's talk about some of those words. Qualification. Now this implies the reaching of a necessary standard, doesn't it? To qualify. Think of an exclusive club. 
and to enter it, you have to have a certain kind of CV. You've been to Oxford. You've got annual earnings over a million. You've got a house in the Bahamas. You've got a beautiful face. You've got a size eight figure. And you can't meet any of the requirements, not one. And then someone comes along and gets you in. And when people look at you and say, what's she doing here? Your friend says, she's with me. Now, that's what's happened to you, fellow Christian. The inheritance of the saints is the most exclusive club there is. And Jesus has got you in there. He met all the requirements and he says to everyone, oh, she's with me. Isn't that amazing? Do you see what an extraordinary thing has happened? That you're in that club of the inheritance of the saints? Look at another word, rescue. This is the thing about the gospel. It's a rescue service. It's for the perishing. It's for the losers, the failures, the dying, or more correctly, dead. Chapter 2, verse 13 says, you were dead in your sins. When you heard the gospel message, at some point you admitted that you needed help. You couldn't save yourself from the impending and just wrath of God. You asked for mercy. You asked for a lifeline. And you were winched up from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, which is also the kingdom of Jesus, because he rules there. You were yanked off the broad road that leads to destruction, weren't you? And you were put on the narrow one. I haven't time to say, I'd love to say more about that. But let's look at the third word, finally, redemption, in verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, this is the part of the gospel which reminds us that a price was paid for your rescue and your entrance into that exclusive club. Your sins had to be dealt with, and they were. It's been done. The price was the shed blood of the spotless Son of God, who was also fully man and therefore able to be our representative. And Paul's going on in the next paragraph to explain or unpick a bit more of that. We don't have time to. I must close. The gospel changes lives, and they go on being changed because something extraordinary has happened. Don't ever think that the gospel has made minimal difference in your life. It has made all the difference. Don't believe the world's lie that it has made you less of a person than you were before. The gospel has changed your status, your prospects, your priorities, and your ambitions. Now, the first two are a done deal. Your status and prospects are so perfect in Christ, they can't be improved. They're eternal. The second two, your priorities and your ambitions, they're the essence of your daily walk. The nitty-gritty of the transforming power of God's word in your life as you embrace the joy and adventure of life with Christ, your Savior. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, I'm so aware that this has just been a little dip into what you have done for us through your word of truth, the gospel. 
Thank you for the fruit it bears in our lives. Please may we go on growing. Fill us with the knowledge of your will, we pray, that we may live lives worthy of you and please you in every way. To the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.